Chapter 10 of Tracked by a Tattoo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tracked by a Tattoo by Fergus Hume. Chapter 10 Exit Dr. Renshaw. Fanks had gained some useful information from the lawyer, and it would appear that the conversation had settled at least two important points in the case. Of these, the first was that Sir Lewis could not have had anything to do with the commission of the crime, or the leaving of the parcel at the chambers in Half Moon Street. Yet the needle had been prepared by a man learned in experimental chemistry, and, as that was the special study of the new baronet, it might be that he was responsible for the preparation of that deadly instrument. By the death of his cousin he had gained a fortune. Therefore, that might stand as a motive for the committal of the crime. But Sir Lewis had been ill for some months. He had been confined to bed, therefore he could not have been in London on the night of the murder, nor, later on, being still in bed, could he have deposited the needle in the letter-box. Clearly the case against Lewis broke down entirely. As for Binjoy, he also had not been in town for six weeks. If this were so, he could not be identical with Renshaw, in which case the suspicions entertained by the detective could not fail to prove groundless. Then again, the fact that Binjoy had a negro servant habited like the assassin, also a black man, was highly suspicious. Binjoy might have instructed the negro to slay, and himself have remained at Taxton-on-Thames in attendance on Sir Lewis. But then what could be his motive for the preparation of so terrible a crime? Fanks sought for this motive. In the first place, he noted that the absence of Lewis from town on that night was deposed to by Binjoy. In the same way Lewis said that Binjoy had not left Taxton-on-Thames for six weeks. Both these statements had been made to Fanks by Vaud. It would then appear that Lewis and the doctor were in collusion to obtain the property of Gregory by procuring his death at the hands of the negro. But even this theory failed to discover, or point out, who was the man who had called to leave the parcel at Half Moon Street. The constable had asserted positively that no negro had gone up the stairs. If then the messenger was not the negro, it was either Binjoy or Sir Lewis. Mr. Vaud said that the one was ill, the other in attendance. Thus the case stood when Fanks left the office of Vaud and Vaud, and he felt utterly unable to cope with the intricacies which met him on every hand. There seemed no way in or out. Yet in the face of the presumption that Renshaw was not the double of Binjoy, the detective determined to follow up that clue. He did not like the way in which the doctor had behaved, either in the chamber of death or at the inquest. He was suspicious of his apparent intimacy with Mrs. Boazoff. Therefore, for his own gratification, he went to Great Auk Street to interview the man, and to see whether his suspicions had any foundation in fact. On arriving at the house he was unable to decide on his next action, but before he left it again he had determined what to do. A stupid-looking manservant received Fanks, and took him into a dull waiting-room, while he went to inform Dr. Renshaw of the name of his visitor. In a few moments he returned and conducted the detective to the back of the house, 
where he found Renshaw waiting for him in the company of another man. This latter was Dr. Turner, for whom Renshaw had been acting as locum tenens, a lean little man with a ferret of a face, and a sharp, jerky way of speaking which must have been exceedingly irritating in a sick-room. Renshaw was more imposing in looks than ever, and, with habitual restlessness, combed his long brown beard with his fingers. But in the badly lighted room Fanks could not find out if the beard was false. So closely did Renshaw resemble Garth's description of Binjoy that, notwithstanding Vaud's evidence, Fanks was on the alert to discover if, as he truly believed, the two were one and the same. The ensuing conversation was likely to prove interesting in more ways than one. After being introduced to Fanks and acknowledging the introduction with a sour smile, Turner arose to leave the room. He was stopped by Renshaw, who evidently did not relish the idea of facing a difficult interview by himself. Another proof, as Fanks considered, of his uneasy conscience. "'Pray do not depart, Turner,' he said in his usual pompous manner. "'I have no secrets from you. I trust, Mr. Fanks, that you see no objection in my adopting this course?' "'Certainly I see no objection.' replied Fanks quietly. Let Dr. Turner stay by all means. I have nothing particular to say." Turner, who had resumed his chair, looked up at this, and Renshaw stared at his visitor with pompous indignation. "'Then why are you here, sir?' he demanded in a more confident tone. Fanks shrugged his shoulders. "'Really, I cannot tell you, unless it is because you left a message at my office that you wished to see me. I did so in fulfillment of my promise to communicate with you before leaving London. Indeed. So you think of starting again on your travels? You will like that much better than staying in London." "'There is no reason why I should not like to stay in London,' said Renshaw, with an angry glance. "'No reason in the world that I can see. I am going out to India, to Bombay. I proceed to Aden by the Oceana and there I exchange into the Clyde." "'It is really very good of you to tell me all this, doctor,' said Fanks ironically. "'I trust that you will have a pleasant voyage.' Renshaw looked nonplussed and a trifle disappointed at the coolness of the detective. It was Fanks' intention to bring about this feeling. For if Renshaw had nothing to do with the crime, if he was not masquerading under a false name, the detective did not see that it was necessary to make these elaborate explanations. It seemed to Fanks that Renshaw's anxiety to bestow gratuitous information as to his movements had its root in a design to mislead the police. Notwithstanding the assurances of Vaud, his suspicions of Renshaw revived in full force under this clumsy diplomacy, and he bent his energies to get to the bottom of the matter. To this end he affected indifference and gave Renshaw plenty of rope with which to hang himself. "'Am I to understand that I am free to go?' demanded the stout doctor in a highly dramatic manner. "'I suppose so. This is a free country.' "'You do not think, my friend, any knowledge, murder?' jerked Turner as he looked eagerly at Fanks. The detective saw the eagerness and wondered. "'Hello, my friend,' he thought. Are you in this also?" However, he answered the question in the calmest manner. 
I was not aware that I had made any accusation against Dr. Renshaw," was his suave reply. "'But I have been watched,' cried Renshaw, "'watched like a criminal!' "'You don't say so,' said Fanks imperturbably. "'And who is watching you? And why have you been watched?' The two doctors looked at one another, and, from a covert sign made by Turner to Renshaw, the detective became convinced that there was an understanding between them. He guessed that the sign hinted at the conclusion of the interview, and this interpretation proved correct. Turner rose and jerked out an apology. "'Mistake,' said the little man. "'Told Renshaw. Moonshine. No watching. Hope you'll catch. Murderer.' "'I have little hope of that,' said Fanks dolefully. "'He has concealed his trail too cleverly and he chuckled inwardly as he saw the two faces brighten. "'Well, well, well. We will say no more, Mr. Fanks,' said Renshaw in a patronizing tone. "'I deemed it my duty to let you know that I go to India to-night. I shall not return to England for many years, as I propose exploring Tibet. Good evening. I am delighted that my fears that I was being watched have proved to be groundless.' But Fanks was not to be got rid of so easily. He wished to ask Turner a few questions, for he believed that the little man knew all about this mysterious Renshaw. However, he made his examination carefully, as he did not wish to startle the pair, but rather to lull their suspicions, so that he might the more easily carry out his plans. He had already decided upon his next step. "'You were not in London at the time of the murder, Dr. Turner?' he asked. "'No,' replied the doctor promptly. "'If I had been, I should have been summoned by Mrs. Foazoff. As it was, Renshaw went.' "'Yes, I saw Renshaw,' said Fanks. "'And I believe that he was right in his theory that the crime was due to a secret society.' "'What makes you agree with my theory?' said Renshaw quickly. "'Well,' drawled Fanks, keeping an eye on both men, "'You see, I can't find out the meaning of that tattooed cross. It must be the work of a society, else it would not have been obliterated. If I could only find out what that cross means, I would hang someone.' Renshaw wiped the perspiration off his bald forehead and laughed in an uneasy manner. "'I wish I could help you,' he said. "'But I know nothing about the cross or the society.' "'And what do you say, Dr. Turner?' Nothing. Was away on that night. Read about cross. Papers. Uh, queer." Fanks saw plainly enough that the pair were on their guard, and that there was nothing more to be got out of them. The only thing to be done was to watch and wait the progress of events. With this idea he said good-bye, and took his departure. Once outside he made up his mind that Renshaw should be tracked. His anxiety to show that he was leaving England appeared to be suspicious, and Fanks concluded that he did not intend to go as he had so emphatically declared. "'I shouldn't be surprised to find that he was Binjoy after all,' thought the detective. "'He professes a deal too much, and his friend Turner is a deal too eager. I shouldn't wonder if the pair were in league. However, I have thrown them both off their guard.' Now I'll play my own game. I'll find out the owner of that silver needle yet, and then I'll punish its owner. I wonder, 
added Fanks with a silent laugh, I wonder whether the criminal will prove to be black or white." With this peculiar remark he went in search of the detective whose duty it was to guard the house, and rated himself severely. "'You have let yourself be seen,' said Fanks. "'Have you not more sense than to play the fool? Keep yourself out of sight. Remain here until I send another watcher, and report yourself at the yard.' The detective, much abashed, tried to exculpate himself, but Fanks would not listen to his excuses. He hurried to New Scotland Yard, picked out a smart man, and instructed him to relieve the disgraced watcher, and to follow Renshaw to the docks. "'And then, sir?' asked the man. "'Then, if Renshaw goes on board the steamer, you will report the fact to me without loss of time.' "'Am I to come back here, Mr. Fanks?' No. I shall be at the docks in disguise. If you see a clergyman holding a white handkerchief in his right hand, you will see me. If you are doubtful, ask the clergyman what the time is, and you will be safe as to my identity. Off with you, and send that fool back to Mr. Crate." "'What are you about to do, Mr. Fanks?' asked Crate, when the man had gone. "'Learn if Renshaw is lying or not.' I'll see if he boards the steamer at the docks and find out if he has taken a passage to Bombay, a fact which at present I am very much inclined to doubt. And if he goes on board the steamer? In that case I'll follow him as far as Plymouth to make sure that he does not get off there. If he doesn't? I shall know that he has nothing to do with this murder. And if he does get off at Plymouth? Why, said Franks, rubbing his hands, I shall track him to Mere Hall in Hampshire." Crate looked astonished, for he could by no means follow the thoughts of his superior. "'How do you know that he will go there?' he demanded in a disbelieving manner. "'Because, if Dr. Renshaw leaves the steamer at Plymouth under that name, I shall find him at Mere Hall as Dr. Binjoy.'" End of chapter 10